0: Well, brothers and sisters, let me invite you to turn to our passage for today, Luke chapter 7, verses uh, 36 uh, to chapter 8 and verse 3. Jeff has already read it for us once. I want to read once more just the heart of this passage, starting in Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. With God's help, if you would incline your hearts and give your attention to the reading of God's word. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. With ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We are here today because of the good news the scripture declares to us, that Jesus is a friend to sinners, that the eternal word came to earth, he took on flesh and blood, Uh, just as we have sung this morning, very God of very God came to the earth in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that he might call not the righteous, but sinners, To himself. Well, we're looking at a scene today where Jesus is invited to a meal by someone that considers himself to be otherwise. Someone that does not consider himself to be a sinner. The man's a Pharisee. And Luke wants to make sure we don't miss that fact. He wants us to know that. He mentions it three times in the first two verses. As he's setting the stage, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat. He went into the Pharisee's house. He's reclining a table in the Pharisee's house. The repetition is important. It's telling us something here. Now we don't know why this man, who is a Pharisee, invited Jesus into his house. We know that as a group, uh, the Pharisees were hostile to Jesus. We know that they were already at this point keeping an eye on Jesus. They were looking for a reason, Luke tells us, to accuse him. Uh, we know that they were discussing amongst themselves as a body what they might do to him, it says back in chapter 6. So whether that is the case here or Maybe this is a gentleman who hasn't quite made up his mind about Jesus. We don't really know. We can't say. The Bible doesn't tell us what his motivations are. Whatever the case, the narrative is going to show us he has much to learn about who Jesus Christ really is. What we do know from looking at this text is that the Pharisee both invites the man in and he holds him at arm's length. He asks him to come to the table, but then he doesn't extend those normal signs of hospitality that you would expect to see in the, in, in that particular culture. And if you've ever traveled uh, to Europe or to the Middle East, parts of Asia, Central America, really anywhere but where we live, um, there are customary signs of hospitality you receive a, a kiss on on the cheek or on both or three times back and forth on the on, on the cheek or you see grown men who walk down the street arms locked together in, in 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 signs of friendship and and hospitality well this man does not extend those signs of hospitality to Christ And yet Jesus goes, and he dines at table with him. He reclined at table. It's important to understand what's going on here and what the setting is. Don't think in your mind of a formal dining room. Uh, Don't think of being uh, seated in the uh, kind of chair that you're seated here with your, your, your feet on the ground. And these days... Meals would be enjoined, just as it says, in a reclined, uh, kind of semi-prone position where you would be propped up on a low sofa, often in a U-shape, and there would be a table in the center, and you could have your left arm typically propping your head up, maybe with a pillow or two. Your dominant arm, your right arm, would be there to, to be free to eat and to interact with the guests who are there. Uh, this was also not a private affair. Uh, doors would be open and people who c- came along would be free to come in, pop their heads in, uh, maybe find something to eat. While they were there, if there was an honored guest, they'd have the opportunity to, to listen in and to see what was going on. So anyone could come in, well, most anyone. Anyone. Almost anyone was welcome, as you can see in a passage like this. Jesus is there in this house of a Pharisee. He's sharing a meal, presumably with a bunch of other Pharisees. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner walks in. She's carrying this alabaster alabaster flask of ointment. Now Luke does not expand on her background, and he spares her uh, the the shame of having her name mentioned in Holy Writ here. But he does tell us something important. He tells us that she's a woman of the city, and almost certainly that's a euphemism. That's a pejorative. It's, it's the way we would describe someone, maybe in today's terms, as a woman of the night. She lives or has lived on the streets. So she is a woman with a history. She's a woman with baggage. She is a woman with a reputation, the kind of reputation that everyone knows about. And in she comes. And she walks into this setting She's also a woman who has the courage to walk into this kind of setting. She's a woman who has the kind of courage to enter the house of a Pharisee, uh, willing to break what would have been considered social convention. She went in through those door frames knowing what kind of reception she would almost certainly get uh, when she went in that house. And she was prepared, friends, to endure uh, the scorn and the humiliation. Why? Because she wanted to do whatever it took to get to Jesus. She wanted to get to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to, what I want to suggest to you today is that the reason she did that is because she is a woman who possesses already the assurance of forgiveness, That she knows the assurance of pardon when she walks into that house. That's the teaching of the text. That everything that you see her doing in this passage is the overflow of this wonderful knowledge she already has that her sins have been washed away, that she no longer has this record of trespasses against the Lord. The strong implication of this passage is that she has already encountered Jesus. That this is not the first time that she has come into contact with him. Why do I say that? Well, she comes into that house pouring out her love, pouring out love to the savior. She walks in with this flask of perfume. She already knows what she is going to do. Her heart is spilling over with love for Jesus Christ out of what he has done for her. She is a woman who has known much sin, she'd been forgiven much, and now she is loving much. That is what brings her to this house of a Pharisee. That's what brings her to that table on that day. It's also the the sad irony of this passage. Contrast that with the Pharisee. The Pharisee is a man who, who, who thinks in his mind he deserves to be there. He has a right to be at the table, and that she doesn't, she of all people should not be in that room. In his mind, she doesn't deserve to be in that house. She doesn't deserve to be in the presence, not only of Jesus, but of someone like himself. Now she, on the other hand, pushes through and she takes hold of Christ. She takes hold of him in willing faith, despite what other people may think, despite what kind of reception she might get from the world, she comes to Jesus not because she thinks that she's worthy, but because she knows he is gracious. Because she knows that he is merciful to the sinful. So notice this. Just picture the scene in your mind. There is confidence on both sides. There's confidence in the heart and mind of the Pharisee, and there's confidence in the heart and the mind of this sinful woman, but they're of a very different nature. They're of a totally, radically different nature. One is grounded in the kindness of God, in the grace of the forgiveness known in Jesus Christ. Where is the other found? Where is it rooted, friends? It's rooted in self-assurance. It's rooted in pride. That man said, I deserve to have a place at the table. The woman says, I'm not worthy to be here, but Christ has bid me come. Christ has said I can come. Jesus said a woman like me can come and sup with him that me, even me, I can come. And he will not despise me. He will not turn me away. He will not reject me. I can be received by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's provided a way. It invites us to ask ourselves what kind of connection we have with Christ. What has drawn you here today? Is it because of, well, this is just what religious people do. We come and we we do the thing on Sundays and we, we go through the motions? Or does it arise like this woman's arises out of, a, out of an abject sense of her own neediness to come before the Son of God Has love for Christ brought you here today? Why do you uh, rub shoulders with Jesus Christ so to speak? This woman's name is never given. Uh, she actually never says a word in the passage, if you look at it closely, but her actions speak volumes, louder than a thousand words about the work of Christ and her life, uh, about the, the sincerity of her faith. She comes into the house, and she stands behind Jesus at his faith, and she begins to weep. And it's a, it's a striking choice of words here, the word weep. Uh, we're not talking about a, a little dainty tear uh, that, is, that is coming out of the corner of your eye. We are talking about torrents of, 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 of streams of, of, of tears that are pouring forth out of her eyes. It's the same word uh, that is used in other places of the scriptures to describe showers of rain. James uses it when he talks about Elijah, You remember Elijah's prayer. Elijah talks about how the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. That gives you a little bit of an idea about uh, what kind of cry this was. This is not a pretty cry. This is, you know, slobbering, you know, stuff coming out of your nose kind of tears. She is overcome with emotion. Why? It's love. It's gratitude. It's the joy of forgiveness. And it's too much for her to contain. It just spills over. The floodgates have erupted. She begins to wet his feet with her tears. Have you ever wept so much that you had this much moisture that you could wet feet and wash them. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head. And this was certainly something that would have been considered taboo. Now there have been plenty of people over the the years that have tried to make something more of this than it really is. Don't misunderstand what she is doing here. There is nothing erotic about this, she has left her old ways behind, but she is certainly breaking social convention. Uh, This is certainly taboo, this is certainly something that would have been considered questionable in polite company. She kisses his feet and then she finally breaks open the neck of that vial of ointment and she anoints his feet. With that precious perfume, she adores Christ, she adores her Savior now again, I, I, I want you to just put yourself in that scene. I know we live in a different culture uh, than they did at that time. I know we don 't typically practice the the same uh, displays of hospitality in our old, in our own in our own culture, but imagine you're there that day. Imagine that you're reclined at table with Christ, and in walks this woman, and she begins to express herself. She begins to express her love for the Messiah in the way that she does, this love begins to, to be so publicly displayed in front of everyone that is there in the room. What does your heart say about it all? Are you put off by that? Is there anything within your, your heart and mind where you, you find yourself a little embarrassed? Embarrassed? By, by what's going on, by the scene here? Or does your soul say, oh, I know exactly what she's doing. I understand exactly why those tears are pouring forth from her eyes. I, no one has to explain to me what's going on there with this woman because I've experienced that also. I know what it is to be the recipient of the same kind of forgiveness that this woman has received that day. This woman of the city kisses and anoints the feet of this Christ who's been so gracious and generous to her. And while she is doing it, what's happening? The Pharisee's watching it. He's watching it. Observing it all, taking in every detail. Look at verse 39 in your Bible. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Do you hear the disdain dripping? off of his lips there. She is treated like a disease. This man was a a prophet. He would know who is touching her, what sort of woman uh, this is. Now, when it comes to the simple fact of, of the matter, we should mark in our minds that he is not incorrect in his assessment. She is a great sinner, But what does the way he speaks about her reveal about himself? You know, sometimes the way we speak about others reveals more than we intend to. Sometimes the judgments that we render about other people speak volumes about our understanding of our own estate of our own need. And that is certainly the case here. When this Pharisee says, for she is a sinner, what is he saying about himself? What what is he saying about himself? He put himself outside of that camp, did did he not? He establishes two categories. You've got one where you've got people of good repute, people who've got it all together. Uh, They are... Uh, apprised well by those in society. They've got a good reputation. You know, they're good, upstanding people. They don't have any of those notorious sins attached to their reputations. And then you've got people like her, people with a past, people with sins and stains that they you, you can't hide. You, you bring them with you whenever you, you go about. Uh, they've had consequences, perhaps, in your life that you aren't able to escape their life long in some respects. Well, the Pharisee places himself in that former camp. She says, he, he says, she is a sinner. The implication being, what is she doing here with a person like me? It's like that parable that Jesus is going to go on to tell of the two lost sons. Uh, One who lives in wanton, open rebellion, the prodigal. We know the story for him. The parable of the prodigal son. But really, there's two lost sons in that passage. You have the, the obvious, open prodigal And then you have the self-interested, self-righteous older brother. The one who says to his father, this isn't right. I've never done anything wrong. I am the one that deserves to be treated this way. It's the parable really of the two lost sons. That older brother was incensed that grace should be should be shown to someone as undeserving as someone who would go off and live with prostitutes and squander the inheritance and then be so warmly, openly received by the Father. Well, in the same way, you have two worlds that are colliding here at this banqueting feast. Friends, I would ask you today, is this the way that the scriptures speak about uh, all of humanity, about our estate as sinful men, that there are two categories of people where you have the bad and the good, you've got the needy and those who have no need, the sinner and the sinless. Does, do the scriptures speak in those terms? No, no. Paul says this in, in Romans chapter three, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. How many categories of mankind are there? There's one. There's one category. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all find ourselves in need of forgiveness. Well, brothers and sisters, you can see so clearly in this passage how a man can show some measure of uh, respect for Christ. He can show some measure of regard for Jesus and still remain in spiritual darkness concerning his own estate, Concer- concerning the estate of his soul. The Pharisee is one of those uh, the, the Bible describes as those who are darkened in their understanding. Jesus talks about those who, who, who trusted in themselves that they are righteous and treat others with contempt. You see, every one of us in this room today is trusting in something. Every single one of us is trusting in something. We're trusting in ourselves, that we can find right standing, that we can stand on our own two feet before the living God, or we're trusting in another. We're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute, our sacrificial lamb. We all trust in something. This man looked to himself. He treated others with contempt. As far as he was concerned, this woman was marked. So was Christ for that matter. He, he thinks to himself, well, it's a foregone c- c- conclusion that if Jesus can't see what is so obvious to me, he mustn't be a prophet. So not only does he impugn uh, the character of the woman, but he does the same thing with Jesus. Jesus. Well, he can't be a prophet. It's wonderful the way Luke tells this story here. As the Pharisee is watching the woman, Jesus is watching the Pharisee. In fact, he's doing more than just watching him. He is discerning the, the thoughts and intentions of his heart. If you look really closely at the way the, the, the story is told, in verse 39, it says that the Pharisee said to himself, he doesn't speak out loud, he says to himself, if this man really were a prophet. And then in verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So Jesus proves himself to be a prophet. Not only does Jesus know who the woman is, he knows who the Pharisee is. He knows who this man is. He's, he knows what's going on inside his heart and mine, just as he does our own. For the first time here, uh, Simon's name is called. Simon, I have something to say to To you, and with all of the the confidence that exudes out of spiritual ignorance, he says, Say it, teacher. Tell me what you have to say. And Jesus tells one of the shortest, uh, simplest parables that you can find in all of Scripture. Verse 41 A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, the Pharisees are already perturbed that Jesus associates as freely as he does with sinners look at him you remember a, a, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners they're irritated that he would count a people like them as friends but here we see why we begin to see why does jesus count sinners as friends? Why is he known in such a way? Why are men and women like this notorious sinner welcomed into his presence so openly? Well, he, he begins to talk about canceling debts. Canceling debts. The parable has a very uh, simple structure to it. You've got one moneylender lender. And there are two debtors. One of the debtors owes 10 times more than the other, 500 denarii. A denarius is a day's wages. So if you take into account a six-day work week, one of them owes about two months' worth. The other owes nearly two years of salary, uh, to, his, his, the, uh, to his debtor. Well, neither of them is able to pay. And this sets the stage for what is to come, except there's a twist, as there so often is in Jesus's parables. The moneylender wipes out the debt of both. He cancels it. This is very important. Now, the word cancel is very important. It's the same word that uh, Paul uses in Colossians 2 in verse 13 where it says, you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, the parallels here are, are obvious. God is in the position of the moneylender. The two debtors are Simon and the woman. They each have their own measure of debt that they have incurred. She owes much more, doesn't she? She, she does. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the, the, the fact of the matter. She owes much more, but neither of them have the ability to pay it back. Neither of them can restore the debt that they owe. That's just as important. They are both bankrupt when it comes to their position with regard to the money lender. So they both share the same predicament. But what happens? God is gracious to both. The debts of both are canceled out. So Jesus is showing Simon not only how to understand what this woman is doing, why she comes into this house, why she bows down, why she washes his feet, why she spends this precious ointment on him, but what he needs to understand about God what he needs to understand about the workings of the ways of God, the wideness of the Lord's mercy, that yes, he stands ready to forgive even the most notorious, heinous sinner. God will wipe out their debts. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of what? All unrighteousness, all unrighteousness, no matter how great, no matter how great our sins, no matter how great our crimes are, he will forgive us. He will forgive us of all unrighteousness. There's no qualifications, brothers and sisters. There's no asterisks there. He will forgive us all unrighteousness all of our sins now comes the burning question now which of them will love him more which of them will love him more how how does simon respond to this well he has he he has to kind of make a concession here he says well the one i suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt What do you mean, Simon? I suppose. What do you mean? I suppose. Do those words have to be there? No. Do you think Simon thought to himself, oh, I can see where this is headed. I've gotten myself into trouble. It won't be the last time that a Pharisee finds himself trapped by one of Jesus' questions. Well, now we come to the application. Jesus says, you have judged rightly. <laughs> He's gracious, isn't he, in his response. And then he turns to the woman. It's a dramatic moment. He says, do you see this woman? Well, of course Simon sees the woman. So what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus aiming at when he, when he utters those words, when, when he asks that question of Simon? He's giving Simon an opportunity to take up a new perspective, to take up Christ's perspective on the matter, to look at this woman in a new way. Do you see this woman? Look at her, Simon. Here you have emphatically a woman who is not beyond the reach of God's mercy, of his salvation. She is, in fact, precisely the one, the kind of one that Jesus came to save—the humble, poor, those who say, "This is who I am. I am a great sinner in need of great mercy, and I have a great Savior, I have a great Savior." She has done what Simon hasn't done. Jesus says, "I entered your house. You gave me no water." For my feet, but she has wet my feet and wiped them with her hair. Verse 45 You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. He says, You didn't even extend the customary greeting on the cheek, she deigned to kiss my feet. You see the same kind of movement, the same kind of uh, parallelism in verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, meaning olive oil, the typical uh, oil that would be used to anoint someone's head. She stooped to anoint my feet and with ointment at that, the more precious of the two. So there, there is an uninhibited extravagance to the worship that she renders to the Lord. She, she, she leaves nothing. She, she, she worships him in spirit and in truth and in a humility that goes beyond words. Now, look at how Jesus's knowledge of her condition is revealed even further here. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many... Are forgiven. You see what that is telling us, friends? Jesus was not unaware of her condition, he was not somehow caught off guard by her reputation or by her past, by what she had engaged in in her former life. He isn't unaware of her sinful estate and he doesn't dismiss it either. He doesn't make it out to be somehow less than it is. He says her sins are many. They are many. Many. The Pharisee is disgusted by the whole affair, but look at how Jesus interprets it. He says, she loved much. Why is that the case? Because she'd been forgiven much. She loved much because she had been forgiven much. Too much sin had been extended, much forgiveness, and in response, she gives much love to Christ, She showers it upon him. She gets it. She understands Christ's purpose. She understands his mission in coming to the world. She recognizes herself to be one of those numbered among the humble poor that he came to save, that in him the forgiveness of sins is to be found. She knew she had much she needed to be forgiven for. In other words, she's not playing games about who she is. She's not playing games about her sinful estate. She isn't self-deceived. She knows she has a problem that only Jesus can remedy. Well, having received his grace, she can't help but respond in affection and love. J.C. Ryle puts it so well. He says this, a sense of having our sins forgiven is the mainspring and lifeblood of love to Christ. A sense of having our sins forgiven is the mainspring and lifeblood of love to Christ. What is the best news that your ears could ever, ever hear? What would it be that would make your heart just leap for joy? We have a number in our body who are battling cancer uh, who have been for a number of years. We have some who have great longings of heart who have gone um, they, seen those desires gone unanswered for a long, long time. You desire to to be married or to to have a child. There are some of you who are carrying burdens that are so heavy, they're so great, you hardly ever speak about them. To see those things lifted would be a great relief. But the greatest news our ears could ever hear would be this, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. They're forgiven. They're washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is what the Lord wanted Simon to know. You can see his kindness with the woman, but you can also see his kindness with Simon. You know, he goes to Simon's house Uh, Jesus welcomes and loves the woman. He also loves Simon. Uh, He teaches Simon in all of his self-righteousness, his self-absorption, who Simon really is, who Jesus really is. He explains to Simon, you too, Simon, have a debt. There's a not-so-subtle allusion to Simon at the end of verse 47 but he who is forgiven little loves little. Simon does not share the same love for Jesus because he thinks of himself as someone who has little need for forgiveness. Little need for forgiveness. It calls to mind another Pharisee, someone who said that at one point in his life, he had every reason for confidence in the flesh. The Apostle Paul, he said, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But what did he do? What did the Apostle Paul do? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He left behind all the filthy rags of his own righteousness, all the things that made him respectable, all of those things that made him an outstanding individual in, in society, and he traded it in for a righteousness, not his own, one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on Faith. He went from a man who had no need of repentance to looking at himself, how? As the very chief of sinners. What a transformation. What a transformation the gospel of the grace of God brings to the hearts of sinners, to those who hear. One of the ways that we can test our understanding of of the grace of God is by looking at how we treat others especially those that we're most prone to think of as being deplorable, not like us. They sin in those despicable ways. That may mean asking ourselves how we look at people like this woman, uh, people whose character and their reputation are bound up in their, their line of work, like this woman's used to be. Is there a place at the table? Uh, For a woman like her, is there a place at the table uh, for people with a rap sheet that is a mile long? What about people at the other end of the social ladder? What about people who are born uh, with a silver spoon in their mouth? Uh, People that uh, are self-conceited and self-interested. They sin in those more uh, socially respectable ways. Jerry Bridges, some years ago, wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Did Christ come to save them as well? Is his grace sufficient for people like that too? Pride comes in all shapes and sizes. The mercies of God are greater than all of our sin wherever we find ourselves. This is the wonderful little thing about that aside at the beginning of chapter 8. If you look there, uh, notice who you find. There are 12 disciples, and then you have women who have been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Less than noble characters. People with a past. That doesn't bother Jesus. They're welcomed in, all the same. And then uh, you have people like Joanna, the wife of Chazza, Herod's household manager, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So there are well-to-do women there also, at least one of them, Uh, is it seems a member of the aristocracy Uh, she is a woman of status and renown and together they are all going about the work of the ministry you've got former demoniacs people that you might be tempted to think of as the sort of worst case scenarios alongside maybe people you'd be tempted to think of uppity folks but none of them are irredeemable. The grace of God extends to them all. What a beautiful gospel picture this is here. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Brothers and sisters, if we are honest with ourselves, if we will be circumspect, if we'll hold our lives up not to other men but to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we will all come to discover that we are those of great sin, that we have much sin like this woman, that we have much we need to be forgiven of. We are people who stand very much in need. Christ is the answer to that. Christ is the answer to that need. That is why he was offered up as a sacrifice for sin upon the cross, that we might be reconciled to God. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus had to die so that our sins could be forgiven. So come to him, come to him, as you are, and the blessed pronouncement that he uttered to this woman, your sins are forgiven, will be yours to know. I suggested earlier this isn't the first time uh, that this woman encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, that she has already received the forgiveness of sins. Well, if that's, that's true, then why does Jesus say this, your sins are forgiven? We might think to ourselves, well, maybe she's looking for assurance. Maybe she's looking for assurance of pardon and that she's struggling under the guilt of her past and uh, the weight of her sin. The passage really suggests otherwise, and I think you can see it in the love that she pours out upon Christ. Verse 49 in particular, seems to suggest otherwise. Look there with me. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Verse 49 in particular seems to indicate that Jesus gave this pronouncement not so much for the woman's ears, but for theirs that she understands well her newfound forgiveness, but the others not so much. They're still working things out. They're still putting pieces together. And so Jesus emphasizes uh, what she already knows. He puts it in the perfect tense here. Your sins are forgiven. It signals to her, you, you are in a state of forgiveness. It's a gospel fact. Now you can see here that that does not settle immediately the question in the, in the minds of the, the, the bystanders here. It actually aggravates the question as to his identity. They're already astonished over who he associates with. Now the issue is just intensified even further. Who is this who even forgives sins? Friends, there are only two ways that we can answer that question. First, you can, you can say that Jesus was a blasphemer. You can say that Jesus is not who he said that he was, that he was not who he claimed to be, that the authority he took to himself was an illegitimate authority. Or you can say that he is exactly who he claimed to be that he is the promised one of God, sent by the Father, possessing authority on earth to forgive sin, that he is the very Son of God. And if that is true, and it is, then every name must bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. What answer do you give? Jesus told the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It was not the woman's works that saved her. It was not the love that she poured out on Christ that brought her into right standing With the Lord, it was her faith. And by his grace, she went forth in peace. Friends, in our natural state, we're not at peace with God. We live at enmity with the Father. Now, you know so well the Christmas story. You know uh, what the multitude of heavenly hosts came declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with the, among those whom, with whom he is pleased. How have you responded to the Lord Jesus Christ? He is our hope. He is where our security and confidence is found. We who are that enmity with God and our natural state can be brought into right relationship with him through the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, how vast and wide are your mercies toward us how rich and measureless and strong you are in your dealings with poor and needy sinners. God, I thank you for the hope of the gospel today. I thank you that we have a good, wonderful, gracious Savior, a perfect, spotless Savior. Lord, I thank you for the promise of forgiveness that we find in him Lord, I ask that you would work in each of our hearts today. I pray that you would work in us for the glory of your name, that you would make us a people whose very lives show much love to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray also that you would save those who are perishing in their sins. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.